Hello, friends. Yeah. Welcome to another episode of Hybrid Unlimited. Today is episode number 11. First time I get it right. Episode number 11. Is she right? We're piling these up, my babes. <laughs> We're doing good. We're doing good. And who do we have? And I'm thoroughly enjoying it. Uh, me too. Are you? Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Go, Go Strong Equipment. The strongest equipment in the world. They can make anything that you dream of, customize with the colors that you want, with your logo, whatever it is that you want. Go to GoStrongEquipment.com. You want to see what it looks like? Take a look at our gym. The entire gym is full of all of their stuff. Exactly. So today we have an exciting podcast for you guys. We have Dr. Greg Lehman. He is an absolute beast in the academic world. He is amazing. One of my favorite clinicians and researchers to date. He's been in the game for about 20 years. And he is the first person that I've ever met that has both a doctor and chiropractor and a, and a physical therapy degree, as well as a master's degree in biomechanics. Dr. Lehman has worked under Dr. Stuart McGill, who is one of the leading researchers in back pain. And he is also a strength coach. And he currently oh, teaches a course, weekend yes. course around the world called Reconciling Pain Science and Biomechanics. All right. You can find that on his website. And he, he calls himself, or he doesn't call himself the leader, but we say, I think he's the leader, <laughs> he's of, the leader. The, the leader of the uh, movement optimist. Optimism uh, movement. Cult? Cult. It's a movement. A movement no, in, here we say cult in an endearing way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a good it, thing. It's not a bad thing. Yeah. Like but I like Lehmanites. <laughs> I think that's catchier. Yeah. So today we talk about a bunch of things. We talk about back pain. We actually do a mini consultation or I do a mini consultation. I jack the call and do a mini consultation <laughs> with Dr. Lehman. I need some really good insight on that too. He does. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We talk about his background and the evolution of his ideas as he moved from a biomechanical and in a biomechanical model of pain into more of a biopsychosocial model we talk about the biggest mistakes that people make when they're injured we explain the differences between several models of treatment and we talk about how he communicates with patients and how he is able to change their deeply held beliefs about injury and pain and how he can take him from that to living pain-free what yeah. else do we talk yeah. about no, that's a good summary. Whether you're a patient, you're an athlete, you're a coach, you're a healthcare provider, there's something in this for everybody. Absolutely. It's an amazing podcast. Yeah. I thoroughly enjoyed recording this conversation and I hope you do too. So without further ado, let's get it started. Hi, Greg. How are you? Thank you so much for taking your time to be on Hybrid Unlimited today. I'm great. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Greg, I'm super interested in learning about your career path. You know, not not very often you meet someone who has a degree in physical therapy, is a doctor in chiropractic, has a master's degree in biomechanics and has done as much research as you have. So that is super interesting. And, and I'm so curious as to why you chose to dedicate so much of your life into academics and research and you know what kind of questions were you trying to answer and i don't know just your why uh i'm just super inefficient i could have <laughs> i could have done it way better <laughs> i just messed up um you know a lot of it like uh, uh, in i did my undergrad in kin 
and I was going to go arrow, but I had massive uh, doubts uh, back then, like 20 years ago. So that's why I did my master's first. So I'd say the driving force would be like insecurity or, uh, you know, just thinking that no one knows uh, anything, my, myself included. So that's why I did the master's and then I went to Cairo. And then um, uh, years after being in practice for five years, I went back to physio. And that that's the reason for that. It's less certainly less noble, but um, Cairo, as you guys know, has more of a dodgy, uh, 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 you know, reputation. Oh, yeah. You know, in Canada and North America. And it's just an easier road to hoe as a physio. And so uh, I had my own clinic and I was working full time and I just went and we had two babies or one baby on the way, one baby and another baby on the way. And I just went back to physio school because it was kind of easy. It was just down the street from me. So I got my physio degree more um, just to open doors to be able to travel and work and all those things. I know that's horrible. I wish I could say it was like for something more noble and enlightened, but it was just it was just easier. What was it specifically that you were insecure about in terms of your knowledge? Uh, so when I was like 21, 22, I was really into biomechanics and low back pain. And, and I thought Cairo was the route, but I had, I had doubts about the Cairo profession uh, and the Cairo training at the time. So I, that's why I thought I should do a master's and I was lucky to go to Waterloo. That, that was the big thing. So I just... Uh, I just was reading a lot and I, I, I was, I was skeptical of the profession. I still am. So that mm -hmm. didn't change. Preaching to the choir. You worked under, what, what's uh, that? Preaching to the choir, man. <laughs> yeah. You yeah. worked under. That's okay. You get used to that. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. You worked under uh, Dr. Stu McGill. Yeah. 20 years ago. Yeah. Wow. How was that? Uh, he, I mean, he was great. He was a, a great, I mean, he, he's like your PhD or master supervisor. And what I thought his strength was, was he would take on lots of different people and let them uh, run with their research ideas, but then really um, give them the advice and the guidance and the, the, the freedom to, to do a, a better job of it. He wasn't a micromanager, but he put in the environment to let, let you do what you want. And that, that's why when you look at his research career, It's varied in, 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 in some ways where he, he goes, he works with a lot of different people. So that's, that's certainly what I learned there. He wasn't really seeing a lot of patients when I was there. So I, I didn't get a lot of clinical training. I didn't get really any clinical training there. How, how would you say that your views have changed over, over the years since working with Dr. McGill? Because from what I read from your articles or from what I gather from your articles and your videos and presentations, um, I feel like your, your views have changed from being overly focused on biomechanics, mechanics, and kind of like that simplistic model and has evolved over time to a more um, encompassing one. Yeah, it's, you know what, even 20 years ago, uh, we knew and I knew that that pain was multidimensional. And, and actually, my biomechanics degree acknowledged that. And they tried to have people consider the psychosocial factors. So I was actually introduced to the, those uh, doubts and those ideas really early. But how I've changed would be, I'm, like I, I say, I'm a movement optimist, which means I recognize that there's a, a lot of ways for people to move well not just one, you know? And so I, I, I really have fundamentals like 
viewpoint on how we how we adapt positively to stress and load and that's why i don't get too caught up in in technique for pain or injury performance is different so that, that that's certainly how i changed where i have a lot more options on how people can move and do well that, I, I that would be the biggest difference I, I that view uh, point resonated with me so much um because even before you were diving into reading his stuff you helped me with my patellar tendonitis. That was something that bothered me for years. I would just avoid things like uh, walking lunges. Remember, would just mm-hmm. I, I felt like I was yeah. literally going to break my knee. And then you're like, you need to practice doing more walking lunges. And it was literally just reintroducing. <laughs> it was literally just reintroducing that movement that I thought was going to kill me over and over again slowly, uh, with with some progression. And and now I have no knee pain. So it's like it's just. Uh, it, that really resonated me, with me when I was reading some of your articles because I've lived it uh, and I've gone both routes and uh, the reintroduction uh, was was really valuable for me, I think. Yeah, that that's it fundamentally. Like the, the kinesiopath model or the traditional biomechanical model is, is it, uh, it's more avoidance than exposure. It's not that it's not exposure, it's more avoidance. And like if you're going to expose, you have to do parameters. And I've, I think I've sort of moved away from the rules and parameters and just focused on good loading, training, progression, and that stuff. I think those things are more important. And uh, and may, and where the pain science comes in is, so someone like maybe someone else who might have had knee pain like you had, they might have been really worried and fearful. And so you there's there's a little bit of cajoling and building optimism and addressing that fear and that that concern that. And so that so that the mechanical aspect of the treatment can now occur. That's how the multidimensional nature fits in there. Can we go through uh, the difference between the kinesio model, movement optimism, and the biopsychosocial model, and and where you, kind of like where your views lie? So the, the biopsychosocial would just be this overarching theme that that says that pain is influenced by a number of factors. Um, you know, psychosocial variables and then biological variables, which it's tough. Like biology is also psychosocial, like means your, your beliefs and context and, and uh, psychological factors can influence your biology and influence how sensitive your tissues are. So it's, it's just recognizing that it, it's not bio then psycho then social, it's everything overlapping, you know, it's, it should be one word together. So that's the overarching. And then the difference between the, Kinesiopath- the kinesiopathological model could fit into the biopsychosocial. Um, it would be part of it, um, but where movement optimism would be different from the kinesiopath is that we would acknowledge that biomechanics and biology and, and exercise and mechanical interventions are important. They're just important for another reason than what the kinesiopath model suggests. So the kinesiopath is that classic, classic, like your joint is out of place, your SI joint, your knee caves in three degrees when you walk. That's so there's more load on the, on the patella. That's why I have pain. The, the more optimistic view is great. Your knee caves in. Well, that's a, that's a load that you can adapt to. Don't worry about it. We just have to find the right amount of stress for you to let your knee cave in. Maybe we avoid it for a month, but slowly we, we start you know, applying that load again. It's sort of like your knee, you know, what people would say, don't let your knees go over your toes, right? That's an old, that's, 
that's a kinesiopathological uh, model idea. And now we've sort of thrown that out and just said, no, that's just load. You adapt to it. Mm-hmm. So I think you can do that with valgus or pronation or spine flexion or shoulder dyskinesis. Does, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. It's just a slight massaging of the KPM, not to worry about it so much, but we're still acknowledging that biomechanics and biology is important. Just there's other factors that are important. So what are the conditions in which biomechanics, uh, in, in which it's important to address biomechanics? So, well, you got like performance that, that I, I think that's cool. Like to, if you, where we can probably agree more, like how you move and how you use your muscles, you know, performance that, 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 that's probably the biggest area. And then the, now we have to have the debate, well, what's the right way to move for your performance goals? Mm-hmm. So I think high load activities, your, how you move is more important when it comes to endurance. I think it's less important. I think you can have a lot more variety. I think at higher loads, there's probably less variety where you see people getting into the same shapes, right? Like, like I started doing gymnastics again, not again, just a, a few years ago. And I would just run before. So now I want to go backwards and like your backflip there, Steffi, the, you, uh, if you want to do a back handspring, you have to have, or like the snatch, you have to have good, you know, thoracic extension and, and shoulder flexion. Well, I don't have jack shit. So my back handspring sucks. And if I had more of those biomechanics would be something as simple as that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you find it difficult to change people's um, beliefs about certain <laughs> movements and certain postures? And, and if you do, how do you address it? Because I was having a conversation with Hayden yesterday <laughs> about how, you know, we, we understand the concept that there's no movement that's bad for you, that potentially you can, you can bend with your, with your spine in a flex position. And that doesn't necessarily mean that something bad's going to happen. And, and, and we accept yeah. it, but it's so like Hayden was saying, there's no way that I'm going right. to, yeah, that I'm, I'm, I'm like, gonna... I'm so, I'm so tied to those previous beliefs. Like, yeah. even though I, when I was reading your articles, I was like, yeah, I understand all of this. This all makes sense. But. I still don't want to see somebody deadlifting with a question mark shape back, you know? Yeah. So deeply ingrained. And, and and for no real reason, I I think other than it, you know, we've just been told that that's an ugly movement maybe. And it's stuck in my head. So, so much and so much in fitness culture in general that we're, we see that in our immediate reaction is, Oh, that's bad. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm smiling because I do the same thing. So that's how I always taught a deadlift or a squat. And so I still, I, I won't go out and teach someone to lift something heavy with a fully rounded spine. Because again, for I think it's performance. I don't think, I, I think there's the cueing, trying to cue a neutral spine, which we know isn't going to happen. You're still going to flex at least 60 to 80 degrees. But I think what you'll end up avoiding is a hundred, like, uh, sorry, 60 to 80% of your max. The total lumbar spine flexion is probably 50 degrees. So you're probably flexing 40, although it looks like you're a neutral. The, the cue to try to be a neutral probably helps you avoid 100%. Wow. And I, 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 there's a, even though you're flexing 60 to 80. <laughs> so I think there's, a, a pro, again, a performance rationale where if, if you cue neutral, your hips are probably going to get more into it. You're going to get like more of a hip extensor moment, you'll get more stress on that tissue. So there's still good reasons to do what you guys traditionally do would be the idea. But if you saw someone lifting and they were excelling and getting stronger and it looked like their lumbar spine was a little more flexed than someone else beside them, then maybe you wouldn't worry about it so much. 
So yeah. since, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah that absolutely. Makes sense. Since we're on the topic of of back of back pain, Ian and I are super interested in that. We're actually in the process of writing a book about back pain. Um, how? Well, that should be easy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, there's a lot of your stuff in it, so it's yes. pre pretty easy. <laughs> <laughs> um, when you encounter when a patient comes in with back pain, where do you start? And, and I have, I always, you know, the first thing that draw me to your stuff was, I think I found a presentation where you were talking about stability and how it's really not that important. And, you know, we have to change the narrative about, um, the correlation between instability and pain. I thought that was so interesting. And that's kind of like what threw me into the rabbit hole of researching more about back pain and what it means. <laughs> So, yeah, I would love to hear your thoughts and, and kind of like your process when someone walks in with back pain and kind of like what, what, how do you incorporate elements of the biopsychosocial model and how do you kind of explain to them what pain is, what it means for them and what the process of rehab looks like? Yeah. Um, so starting with the end there, the, the process of rehab, that, that's a question we should all ask, like. I don't think people do this, do this enough when they teach a course or practice where you kind of want to say like, what has to happen for this person to get better? Like what, what, what mediates recovery? You know, we're like, what, what's the end goal? What, if this person is out of pain, what do they look like? You know, how are they different, you know, six months from now or two weeks from now than they are now? Like, those are questions we don't ask enough. Like what really allows someone to be pain-free or to be doing really well with, with, with the pain that they have? Um, so I, I, I think like, like if I had to work like with a goal in mind, it's usually the important things that I think mediate recovery are like getting, getting people back to doing the things that they love. That's like the hugest thing. What are you missing? What do you want to be doing? You know, what's getting in the way of you doing the stuff that, that, that you want to be doing. And it's, you know, the true, the, uh, Greg, can you repeat? You guys there? Yeah, can yeah. you repeat that from um, what's getting in the way of you doing the things that you want to do? Yeah, so the, it's the idea. Like we, we want to. You find the things that people and that they they love and and that they want to be doing, and then you kind kind of have to figure out okay, what's stopping them from from doing those things again, right? And so if it's deadlifting, we have to get them deadlifting again. But they might be worried about deadlifting, or they might be caught up on a certain position, or or maybe they're, they're over bracing and they don't need to. So you, you, you change their deadlift style or when they have started to deadlift again, they've just done way too much, you know, way too soon because they remembered when they deadlifted three years ago, you know, they could deadlift 400 pounds. And now you have to say, no, it's okay to start with 50 because 50 turns to a hundred and hundred turns to 200. So like you, you kind of want to find what, what are the things that are driving their, their sensitivity you know, or that are stopping them from doing the stuff that they, they, they love. And I think that's where the psychosocial interacts with the biomechanics. So your mechanical treatment is let's have you slowly lifting again. Maybe we do it, That that's potentially something that you do. So that would be like a mechanical tweak, but maybe they just had a really poor loading progression. And then you want to say, okay, what are all the other drivers of sensitivity? Maybe they're not sleeping well. Maybe they're not exercising in general, you know, maybe they have, you, you know, some fear and worry that they need to address. And then maybe they have other things that we as physios can't help with, like some 
driving anxiety or depression where we, someone else needs to help us out. So you're just sort of saying like, you know, how can you be healthier? That's, that's like a question I always ask my patients. So usually we end, like we end the session with that, like, where do you think you can be healthier? And what do you think I can help you with? That, that sort of idea. Yeah. Well, I feel like every single power lifter needs to, to go see you because <laughs> yeah. you just described the exact uh, dilemma that mo- most of us get into where it's just poor loading progression. You mm. get injured. Yeah. You remember how strong you were at your strongest. <laughs> and then you do and that thing. <laughs> yeah. You're constantly measuring yourself to that one and number. And then you just dive way, in way too fast, get hurt and do, do repeat this cycle for your whole career. And our, our biggest <laughs> issue is that kilos pounds weight doesn't mean anything anymore you know we don't understand how heavy 50 pounds are yeah it's like okay week by week cool i'll just add 100 pounds week by week (laughs) you know because weight is not weight well you're you're so out of touch now it's like being a billionaire like what's a coffee cost a thousand (laughs) dollars what's a gallon of milk (laughs) who even drinks a gallon but um uh what i love about that approach is it's it's so much simpler than people make it out to be sometimes but and and it's grounded in experience and in and in the way you relate to people and in what's relevant to them. But I think right sometimes you know clinicians and patients alike feel like it's soft and hard to to grab tangibly, and they're looking for the seventeen dysfunctions in someone that they know are causing their pain that they can assign credit to and that they can address, and then they have you know unwavering faith that the correction of those dysfunctions will lead to the resolution of pain and that they fixed everything and that everything will be great. Um, and it seems like both patients and providers are participating in that. When the patient comes to you and says, I know this caused my pain, right? They're assigning credit to a very specific event. How do you begin to untangle that with them to get to this place? So, So sometimes let's, let's say you don't think they're right. That's okay. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, uh, but if if you so they they might have an, a a false belief. You don't always have to address every false belief. Right. So you got to decide that that belief is unhelpful, mm-hmm. right? So you can still do incorporate a good progressive loading program that would help also address that that um, whatever perceived dysfunction they have. So you don't you don't have to challenge everyone and tell them they're wrong all the time. <laughs> that's fine. Right? But if you think it's getting in the way, that's where you have to you know gently look. Look, look for things in their story and their exam that would gently challenge that belief a little bit. And, and you want to give them a better explanation for their pain than anyone has ever given them before. That's sort of the idea. I know you've been told this. That makes sense. Those treatments can help you turning on your glutes when you're walking. But you've tried that. From what you've told me, it sounds like there's these other factors going on with your pain. Do you think that we could work on that for a bit? You know, like it's, it's, it sucks, but we almost have to be salesmen, which I don't like being, but that that's the idea. You know, you're selling your patient's story back to them. Like you, you really understand what's going on. That's the idea. So you give them a better explanation. That's how I address that. But I would say when people think that there's like a therapist thinks there's those 17 things they have to correct. If you, if you watch what they do with the sound off, Often it's just a good loading program, but they have this corrective mentality and you look at it and you're like, oh, you're just slowly progressively loading them to the things they want to do. But your rationale is movement correction when really what it is, it's loading and adapting and calming shit down and building shit back up. But we just can't say it that simply. 
we need to say the fucking TFL is turning on wrong or something, or whatever <laughs> muscles wrong. Yeah. Today. Do you think we can get to a point where that stops being the norm and it's kind of replaced by this, this model that you speak about? No, no, no. People are digging in, man. Oh, we're doomed. We'll have a few people who, who <laughs> like will embrace this. I, I don't know. I feel like this. We're this... gonna get a reaction. It's gonna. I think it's gonna double down. There's just a massive JOSPT had a whole journal dedicated to motor control bullshit. Oh, we read that whole thing. <laughs> yeah, well, I feel like at least now people are having this conversation more often. You know, before yeah. that, I I think that the the whole biomechanical model was that was it. That was the law. Like that was the truth. And, and, and whenever that's you, everyone accepted. And whenever you challenged it, people would eat you alive. But <laughs> but now now it's become like an actual debate. Yeah. I don't feel so alone anymore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, you shouldn't. When I was in physical therapy school a few years ago and we started learning about orthopedic tests, I came home yeah. I came home crying one day to Hayden and I'm like Either I'm the stupidest person on earth because I can't feel anything. I can't feel the joints moving. I can't. I don't understand how these tests are magically going to tell you exactly what structure is damaged, or everyone else is wrong. Yeah, you're way smarter than the rest of them. That's, that's the reality. Yeah, but it was so it was so frustrating. And whenever I would speak about it on my social media or, or with my classmates, I would get a lot of a lot of hate, and people wouldn't like it. People didn't like it. I find it interesting that when you speak of uh, uh, your approach, you didn't mention at all core stabilizing exercises. And I feel like that's where most people begin or that's what people think when they think about a, a back rehab program. Yeah, I, I just look at them as like progressive loading exercises. Right. And 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 I would only I do them when I. I want to build when someone wants to get built up to do the things that they love. That's, that's when you do those, those exercises. Cause I, I have a lot of patients where they've done so many core exercises. They have this idea that their back needs to be fixed. And I'm like, you don't have, do you want to stop doing those? Do you like doing those? No. Okay. Well, there's other things that we can do then, right? You can use your goal activity as a stressor for your back to calm things down. You can start running again. You can walk, you can hike, you can rock climb. So I, I, I only do like basic core exercise. If, if they have some, like I'm a good example. So back to gymnastics, like I wanted to do backflips again and I kept injuring my back and tearing my abs. So my goal activity, my meaningful activity was way beyond what I was currently capable of. Right. So I had to go back to do sit ups and leg raises and whatever, all, all the boring old core exercises to build me up to do the meaningful activity. That, that's when I think they're relevant. But for the average person with low back pain, they, they don't have some deficit that needs correcting. Mm -hmm. They just need to get moving again, usually. Mm -hmm. So core exercises are one option. I just don't think that they're that they're I think that they're rarely ever necessary. Does that seem fair? Yeah, absolutely. What even is the meaning of stability? So typically like in the biomechanical world, it's mechanical stability where if you stress, if you perturb a system, like push something, uh, it'll wobble. And then if it comes back to its resting position, that means it's stable. So just because something moves a lot like a willow tree in the wind, it doesn't mean it's un unstable. An oak tree is just more robust, meaning it doesn't bend as much. So when something's stiffer, 
and you can have something less stiff. It doesn't mean it's more stable. It's just more robust. So st stability just means you perturb something, it'll come back to its resting state. So surprisingly, there's very little research that says that people with low back pain are unstable. That's it's pretty amazing. It really hasn't been tested. <laughs> I'm laughing because it's hilarious because we throw that term around. I think stability is like what the research has said is has shown us that stability is important and that it's complicated how we achieve it, but it's never something you have to worry about. That's what I think. It's like growing your hair, unless you're going bald, then you have to worry about it. But anyway, it's like, like growing your fingernails. There's probably a massive science behind how your fingernails grow. I bet it's really complicated, but it's ne I never have to think. I got to focus on my <laughs> fingernail growth today. Yeah, That's what I think. I just made that analogy. I don't know if I'm ever going to use that analogy. This might be a one-time usage. <laughs> I like uh, that, actually. <laughs> you just don't have to think about it. And that's kind of what I think about stability for the, for the most part, for the, I mean, high loads, you know, or like some gymnastics, maybe lifting or rock climbing, maybe you need to add a little bit of co-contraction because you want to avoid a movement pattern, but I still don't think most people with low back pain are unstable. Yeah. That's something I think you've, you've mentioned before is the amount of redundancy that you can see in, in that kind of system. People think yeah. that they're always on the verge of some sort of catastrophe or, or compromise. And that we actually have pretty enormous buffers that we can measure against the things that we do in a normal day-to-day -day basis, right? Maybe not totally. putting 1,200 pounds on your back having never done it before, but, you know, but pretty much anything you can reasonably encounter. So I definitely like that idea. Yeah, it was funny that you mentioned earlier that sometimes people are getting the right end result, but the way that they're getting there is not necessarily correct. And I think you see that a lot in uh, PT. So I was telling you... Again, yesterday we were oh, talking yeah. about this, uh, where I went to a bunch of different uh, physios in Canada uh, when I was playing hockey. I was having some lower back pain and, um, you know, nobody really was able to help. Finally, I went to one guy and he told me that my glutes were firing at the wrong time and that uh, I needed to do a bunch of back extension to correct it. And at the time, not having the right context, I thought that 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 this guy was a guru. This was like, oh, <laughs> My glutes weren't firing. I found and my now, guru. you know, now, now, now I do these exercises <laughs> and I, it's corrected. And so it mu he must have been right. Uh -huh. But his process wasn't right. You know what I mean? It, yes. it, it wasn't a glute firing issue. Like you said, I just, I avoided the pains that were the things that were causing pain. Yeah. I slowly was reintroducing movement and progressively overloading yeah. it. <laughs> so it's, it's literally following the exact model that, that yeah. you've spoken about, but. I thought I was doing something. I thought I was fixing the timing of my glute flexing. Right. It's know? my anecdote can say nothing about the validity of, of, yeah, of the absolutely. reasoning. Yeah. Yeah. And what's odd, it's a bit ironic is that that explanation of the glute firing gave you permission to do the loading. Right. And, and unfortunately, maybe without that biomechanical explanation, you might not have done it. That's yeah. the, that's sometimes the problem. Yeah. I think it goes <laughs> gives you back permission to, what, to load. Yeah. I think, I think what, like going back to what you're saying, sort of being a salesman, like just giving them a story that they can latch onto. And if that helps them get from A to B, uh, which is doing, doing some sort of loading, it's mm. still helpful in a sense. Yeah. That's another question I have for you. It's right. We, we tend to be on the side of, oh, we want to give people a positive story to tell about their bodies, but, and some people have really negative stories that really, you know, drive their avoidance behavior. But it's hard yeah. to tell who is 
who is susceptible to those kinds of um, suggestions and who is just kind of those kind of ideas are harmless and they're going to actually pursue a loading program regardless of the nonsense you say. <laughs> uh, how do you get a sense of that? Is that just a, a you know, on a, you know, a clinical thing for no, you? You're, you're always, you're always guessing. Yeah. That, 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 that's a tough one. When, when, when is that a, a harmful belief that someone has? I mean, I had someone last week tell me, uh, and I talking to him today is like, he, He's like, we're doing Skype sessions. And he said, I want you to talk me off of this biomechanical ledge. <laughs> <laughs> so he's, our, he's acknowledged that, that it's a factor, which is kind of neat. But he has that residual, well, how do I know it's not my disc? You know, I don't want it to be my disc. I believe you, but a part of me doesn't. So I always like my joke with my patients is like, you'll start getting better once you trust your body as much as I do. Right? And that. And that's, and that's what I think exercise and activity does. It's, it has a mechanical and peripheral effect, but there's that like, oh, I can do this. You know, confronting yourself with your own strengths, the idea. And Steffi, that's what you can do with all those orthopedic tests. They don't, they don't tell you jack shit about what tissue is damaged, <laughs> tissue is damaged, but you can flip your orthopedic exam on its head. Yeah, Instead of finding like the negative things, you just say, look. That's an amazing Nears test, or that's the best O'Brien's <laughs> test I've ever seen. I literally do that every <laughs> time. Now. Amazing camps. <laughs> so you, you don't have to throw that knowledge out. You just spin it. Yeah. That's funny. That's awesome. What um what are some techniques that you use to um reduce the sensitization when someone has kind of like a highly triggerable pain alarm? Yeah. Uh so the, my approach is is honestly like just activity resumption of, of activities like give, like talking to them and and giving them like a, a slow goal goal setting like starting to do two minutes of walking multiple times a day or or just going out for coffee for 15 minutes with their friends so that that that's my approach what i don't do well and i always make jokes in my courses like I'm not a breathing guy. Like I don't know how to breathe. I'm like, you got three holes in your face, pick one. Like <laughs> I, it's not, that's what? not my thing, but I always say you, you could see someone about breathing or yoga or whatever, whatever it happens to be. I'm not, I'm not a breathing person. Mm -hmm. So I, I, with my approach in philosophy, I could certainly develop my skills in other areas to calm shit down. My, my big way is, is education and then reactivation. But I know that there's, you don't even have to do that. There's other ways that you could do it. Those are the two that I feel good with. I felt like when, when I was reading your, your pain handbook, which by the way, I've read about four times. Um, I honestly felt like it was written for me, <laughs> but this is the worst part. And the reason why I keep rereading it is because as much as I feel like I understand it, I feel like I can't necessarily apply it to me if that makes any sense so i've been having yeah. back pain for about three years and i don't want to turn this into a consultation although i might <laughs> <laughs> i've been having back pain for about three years i don't know if you know about me but i'm a competitive power lifter a couple yeah. of years ago i was able to deadlift 547 pounds and at a body weight of 120 and To be honest, since then, I haven't really been able to get anywhere near it. Well, I deadlifted 530, but that was about it. And just been having kind of that back pain that comes and goes. And 
you know, it literally just everything you mentioned, the sensitization, just having that pain alarm that gets triggered out of nowhere, the pain that moves around, the representation. Sometimes I walk into the, I walk into the gym and literally the, the, the distance that the bar needs to travel feels farther away. Like I feel like it's, okay. it's longer or I feel like I'm off balance or I feel like just my, my movement is not the same at all. And I d even just imagining myself doing the movement is almost painful. And I feel like I can't coordinate myself well. So my movement has changed the way that I, the way that I deadlift has changed. And I just feel like I can't, can't progress, can't get back to where I was, no matter how much I work on understanding pain and trying to calm shit down and build shit up. <laughs> Yeah. It, 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 is it the pain that's getting in the way of your, your improvement with training? Yeah. Yeah. And is it only deadlifting that you feel it? I feel it also in squat, but it's, it's way less, way less. Yeah. What does that tell you then that, that it's <laughs> not the same? Yeah. That like it may be like what about like uh, other complimentary exercises? Um, like single leg deadlift or no, I mean, I feel it, but it's, deadlift. yeah, I What's can, that? I feel it, but I can do them. Yeah, but it's not the same pain, right? No. Oh, shit, I'm losing you. No, oh, it's not the oh. same pain. You there? Yeah. No, um, it's... It, it seems yeah. like a like we, a, we, a weird game of almost... You have to use your conscious brain to sort... To plan ahead to trick your subconscious mind into, like, accidentally doing the exercise. You're like, this isn't a deadlift. It's a one-leg deadlift. And then you're like, oh, I'm doing it. You know? It's like, it's... It's, it kind of seems like that's, that's the game. I don't know. And are, are you fine when you're, you're training like way, like sub max efforts and that? Sometimes. Like what, what, what's your other training like? Sometimes I'm fine. Sometimes I'm not fine. You know, sometimes I come into the gym and I do a 160 kilo deadlift and it's, yeah. and it's, it's great. I'm able to train the next day. And sometimes I do 160 kilo deadlift and I'm incapacitated for a week. Really? Yeah. It's so volatile. And I, actually, I did get an MRI um, yeah. a few months ago, about six months ago. And to my surprise, there was nothing there. <laughs> Interesting. There was, I had a small bulging disc um, at L3-4, and then I had um, sacralization. But who knows how long that's been there. Yeah, and... and like your your training in general, how how is it? Like, it, are you training the same that you used to train? No, because I haven't been able to. No, no, like leading up to the when did the low back pain start? Like three years ago. Okay, and that sorry that that's you cut out. I didn't hear that. I thought that was three months ago. No, okay. three years. So three. That's when you did your max your your PR. Two years ago, I got my PR. Yeah. Okay, and you had and then back how pain close have you been it. since then? How close? Uh, about uh, 15 pounds away. Okay. And, and how different is your, like, your overall training program now compared to then? Like, completely. Like have, you, have, have you played around with different loading, like, like a different training program? Yeah, completely different. Like, honestly, I used to be, I used to feel like I was made out of steel, man. Like, I could squat four times a week, deadlift three times per week bench four times per week on top of that do a bunch of conditioning and i was and i felt great now yeah. i can i can barely do two squat sessions and one deadlift session every 10 days i seriously feel like i'm 67 
So how have so sorry? <laughs> we can talk later if you like. I'd be curious to to do this if you want. Sure. Because um, w- with things like that, like I would look at sneaking in more load somehow, and and I would stay kind of in a not a biomechanical world, but stay in the mechanical world of how how do you get load to get you to adapt in there, but differently. Mm-hmm. You know, and it, it might be cutting the weight and training more frequently. It could be like deadlifting twice a day, but not like a sub-maximal, like somehow sneaking in different types of load, like try different loading parameters to think of like getting your nervous system and your spine and everything to adapt, like just playing around with stuff like that. Yeah, that's something um, that I haven't tried. Powerlifting is certainly not a strength of mine, but with runners, like, and I would use the same approach, like some people might run four times a week and they run a hundred kilometers. But the other approach would be like, you need to run twice a day. That's how we're going to get your volume in seven days a week where we stay under threshold for a while. And then you build, you build like, you have just, just a slow accumulation of load. Like that's multiple times per week, but you're staying, you're staying under your threshold for a while rather than, so you said you just deadlifted once every 10 days. Yeah. Yeah. That's hard on the back. Yeah. You know I mean? That's that that's probably too infrequent or something like that. So it's like, it'd be playing, it'd be playing with your loading scheme Yeah, would, would be the idea there. And then, and then doing the tough question of like, are, and you've probably already done this, but like just looking at other areas of general health, because you've ruled out the red flags, which is great. Yeah. Right. Or the sinister stuff. And then like, how, how can you, how can you be healthier, which is a harder re- reflective thing, like sitting down and thinking, well, what do I have to change in my life to be healthy? Is there something that needs addressing? Yeah. Which you probably don't want to do here. No. The the crazy thing is that I have been getting so much stronger. Like I added 30 kilos to my back squat over the last Yeah. over the last year only. But my my deadlift just stayed the same. I really liked your suggestion though of increasing the frequency but like staying sub way way sub max yeah. instead of trying to do it once every blue moon and and mm. loading it heavier. Yeah. That's a, that's something I'm going to try for sure. Yeah, and, and I would like and then give yourself a bit of a break too, <laughs> you know, like, and, and congratulate <laughs> yourself on your strengths. There. If you're squatting 30 pounds more, think of the load that like the load that goes through the spine when you're squatting is it's pretty comparable to a deadlift. Yeah. I, it might even be more. I have to, I haven't read the research in a while. I don't know if anyone's really compared it like Escamilla, I think compared it in 2001 or something. It's, it's, it's not, is that right? Or 2003? I don't know. Do I don't, I don't know what paper you're referring to, but. Raphael Escamilla, yeah, yeah. I'll pull it. I'll send it to you. Um, where I, I, I would think that squatting isn't really that much easier in terms of the external moment on the spine. So you can do it. Especially for you because of how good your leverage is for deadlift. Exactly, yeah. You know, it's probably individualized, right? There's a range. But, yeah. That's yeah. super interesting. Also, um, the frequency has its own psychosocial component too, because it feels like you're still you're still in it, as opposed to yeah. taking like, oh, I haven't deadlifted in two weeks. Like, hopefully, it's there today. You know, hopefully, today's a good day, right? If you have a bad day, you can get over it and get on to the next one because you still have more, you know, more to yeah, do, that's it. more to learn. And you're also not going to be failing yeah. reps if yeah. you do it that way. Whereas if yeah. you're trying to go heavy. Every ten days, and you can see the progression a little clearer because it's more, it's more proximal. Yeah, unstable connection. Did we lose you, Greg? Yeah, 
Okay. I can't hear you. Sorry. But we're okay now. Yep. Okay. Uh, what, what were you saying, Ian? Oh, just the I like the high frequency approach to oh, right. sub threshold, yeah. sub pain threshold training, just for the the kind of the encouragement it provides people that they are training and continuing to move and participating in the thing that they enjoy to do. And, and also it allows you to put bad days behind you faster and continue to improve in ways that you don't really get to see as easily if you're lowering the frequency, but trying to keep the intensity of the session higher. Yeah. I mean, you, you guys know this from working with people, but you, and, but it's really hard to train yourself is that, uh, that you probably have athletes that respond differently to different type of loading programs and training programs. So like, and, and you, and your, your body and nervous system and your whole ecosystem will, will have changed from three years ago. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's always trial and error, figuring out what's the right thing for you right now. Absolutely. Yeah. The hardest, but it's really hard to do it on your own. Yeah, it is hard. And the most difficult part about being a competitive powerlifter. And for me, it's kind of, uh, you know, it, it's an important part of my business to compete and, and kind of walk the walk. So if I'm competing multiple times per year, n- taking time off or taking it slowly hasn't been an option over the last three years. And I feel like that has dug me even deeper into the, the issue. Yeah, because you've, yeah. di- you've had to dive back into training, whether you were recovered or not. Exactly. You were like, oh, well, my back still kind of hurts, but. I, I guess I'll just for this take 600 milligrams of ibuprofen and suck it up, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And so that that's a, it sounds like a good case where often people need to be encouraged to do something into discomfort because they're avoidant, but I don't think that you were avoiding, <laughs> you know, you, you, you would, you would be classified as a, not to classify you, but to tell you what you are, but it sounds like you're more of a persistent or an endurance coper. I think she's textbook. Someone might want to encourage you to back off and give you permission to back off a bit. It might be a touch helpful. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you'd be in the gym five hours a day if we didn't drag you out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> do you teach any of this in school? Or do you, do like you a, ever, a formal ever, program? No, so like I, as a, as a like guest speaker. Uh, no, no. Man, you uh, should. We we desperately need this in school. But then, then if they had him come in, they'd have to undo the entire curriculum. <laughs> That's what I said. <laughs> they would have to change the questions in the board's exam. Yeah. Actually, they actually should do that. Probably. Uh, no, I haven't been to any physio programs, but you, the, the Cairo training here was pretty good. They acknowledged a lot of this stuff when I was there. They weren't teaching motion palpation and saying people's SI joints are out of place. But I think things are changing. Uh, yeah, things are changing, but it's 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 in a weird transition. I feel like too, because sometimes it's a it's a framework without a philosophy, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then you're like, does even this framework make sense? You know, is there <laughs> is there a better one? You know, um, that explains you know what we're seeing in the data, but. Um, yeah, that's tough. Yeah. Um, Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I think, you know, you're in the same boat. It's hard to be one person to change an entire, you know, kind of organization of of interests that are pretty deeply kind of ingrained in, yeah. in the profession. It, it always starts with yeah. one, though. 
Yeah, we need to need to build a a movement with some momentum. He is. I don't know if you realize, but you you have a a legit following. Oh, that's cool. No, I don't. Yeah, <laughs> a, a cult following the of Lemanites. Of Lemanites. Yes. Oh, the Lemanites. <laughs> no, yeah, man. People. The <laughs> movement optimist. That's yeah, better. Yes. yes. No, people. People are loving it. I feel. Do you feel like you've kind of? I feel like he's come out of nowhere. Where have you been for these <laughs> so 15 years? I, man? I, I've been saying this stuff for almost like at least 15 years and some of the things for, tw for 20 years. It's just uh, uh, I, I was a popular researcher 20 years ago and then I disappeared into clinical practice for 10 years. And then I popped up again the past eight years. Do you I have, had to treat more patients first. Mm -hmm. Do you have any plans of, you know, marketing your, your approach or... Or bringing this everything to, more to life, or uh, onto the life. I mean, so I, I've been I've been teaching my course for uh, um, four or five years now, which is two to three weekends a month. So I'm 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 pretty booked with with that stuff. But um, I, I I certainly don't do a lot of promotion anywhere. I probably should or something like that. Have you been invited to any professional association? conferences or yeah, anything like you that know, I'll, I'll get a i'll get a few keynotes at, at places which is fun i was just at like the the sport the world was it the world it was the sport physiotherapy maybe the canadian sport physiotherapy conference uh a few months ago in vancouver um you know i'll get one or two of those a year are you somewhere in the world are you received well at those talks people might select into them but uh <laughs> i mean it depends what i talk about <laughs> I went to a Cairo conference once and I had like two minutes and I just, it was like six years ago and it was, the theme was everything you think, you know, is wrong. I love it. <laughs> it's fun. But <laughs> yeah, Greg, I think, I think the only thing that you're missing is some swagger. And I think I know uh, who can help you. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> what, um, so what's the future look like for you? What kind of research questions are you looking to answer? If, if any. Uh, we, we, I have some relationships with some spine biomechanists here in Toronto and we're going to do some, search. it's a bit on hold cause they're super busy, but we're, we're going to actually try to document, you know, better ways of measuring lumbar spine flexion, uh, take a look at, and one of these guys is, is Tyson beach. Who's a great researcher, strength coach. Um, we're going to look at people lifting heavy weights and what their spine does during uh, those activities, how, how, um, how responsive the spine is to like how easy it is to change your spinal flexion position. Cause that's the thrust. Like we, we, as people assume spinal flexion is inherently wrong. And if you can't, if you can't do anything about it, then what's the point in worrying about it? Mm -hmm. yeah, one thing right. Like when you guys train, I, I, I would say if you change your, your spine position, it's your thoracic spine that's mm -hmm. changing and not your lower lumbar spine. I think when you see that question mark, it's the thoracic spine. Yeah. I, I don't think the lumbar, that's my my belief. That I don't think the lumbar is really changing that much. Yeah, I think it's super interesting. Like when you get a clinical education, a lot of people tend to believe that the biomechanics is like settled science that, oh, we know everything there is to know about it because there's not in the biomechanics world and something that you've brought out, I think, or transitioned into some people's kind of clinical knowledge bases yeah. that man there are a lot of questions so what do we 
where are the limits of our of our world when we talk about biomechanics? So if you look at, I always say it's the biomechanics that challenges the biomechanics. Yeah, which I love that. What happens is certain researchers become really popular, and that gets taken as dogma, and we ignore these other great researchers, like the the stoop versus squat today, the, the squat debate, like spine flexion versus neutral has been going on for 30 years. And if you look at a researcher, a biomechanist named Patricia Dolan, 30 years ago, she was advocating for a flex spine is safer as long as it's not past 85% of max. She always argued against neutral, but no one ever hears about her. <laughs> yeah, I she won awards. She's fantastic. Yeah, that's interesting. I actually have that in my notes. Oh, there was one other piece that I wanted to touch on. You go ahead while I think of it. Um, well, I just had a question for the closing notes um, related to some actionable steps for people when they encounter an injury. Kind of what would be their step-by-step -step approach and how can they use pain as a guide instead of uh, something that makes the process worse? Oh, good one. Um, I mean... <laughs> If it just, if there's no trauma, if there's trauma, you know, you, you should get things checked out or if things just like, you can trust your body too. If things feel really weird and you're really worried, you know, get checked out by a professional, like rule out those red flags and the sinister stuff. We'll get someone to rule, rule them out. Mm -hmm. And, and then after that, once you've done that, know that, you know, surprisingly pain is not the best indication of how much damage there is. And so moving is still good, but at the same time, like, we've taken this advice, like keep being active, you know, because we don't want people just lying on the couch, but that doesn't mean keep hammering your spine. It means you're allowed to take it easy for, for a few weeks, you know, like give, give yourself a break. You're not for athletes who are, who push too hard, giving them permission to like explain, you're not going to lose your gains. You can, you can cut your volume and intensity to 50%. You can do other things. that's going to maintain, take this as an opportunity as a deload for a few weeks. Like, Uh, that, that's what I, I, I would recommend. And then slowly build back up. If things aren't improving in a few weeks, then again, get, get checked out again and figure out an, another plan there. But know that there's lots of ways to help with pain. And the vast majority of times that we have low back pain, it's not serious and it's normal, unavoidable, and usually goes away on its own with some modification. So I guess it's not on, their, on its own. All dangerous ideas. <laughs> What's that? All, all those ideas are dangerous to the, the status quo. <laughs> no, <bit. laughs> that's conventional wisdom. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> and then get your neck manipulated yeah. and that'll set everything go. up fine. There we go. <laughs> Three times a week. <sighs> Six weeks. Feels good though. It, it must be. It's fun to do too. <laughs> yeah. It is. The I moves are pretty fun. I don't do it anymore. <laughs> yeah. Wish I could just light up my whole family. <laughs> You had another question or no? Uh, it escaped me. Awesome. I'll, I'll have to hit him up later. Okay, Greg, thank you so, so much for your time. We really appreciate you coming on this show. And we hope to have you again as a guest. Yeah, for sure. I threw the video back on so I can see you guys. Perfect. You're in Toronto, right? <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah. That's, uh, that's where I grew up for... Oh, really? Yeah, for 23 years. So if you ever need where? access... Uh, I started off in High Park. Uh, oh, yeah, and then, my wife's from there. Oh, really? And then yeah. um, I spent the majority of my childhood down in Mississauga, South End, like Mississauga Road in the QW yeah. area. 
Um, yeah, and I've just been in Miami the last four years. So if you ever need powerlifters nice. for a study or anything, yeah, let I was us gonna know. say for that study you want to do, I know we a know bunch it. of strong people. Yeah, we know <laughs> in a, a, Toronto. In Toronto, yeah, yeah, for sure. And I'll be in it if my back is, you know. <laughs> we got to do the stronger. boring stuff first to make sure our um, the the methods, like the, the the equipment's good, and then we can start getting. It. I don't know how long this will take. These guys are really busy. And they're they're the brains behind it. So well, whenever you're ready, we'll we'll help you gather participants. Yeah, that'd be awesome. And yeah, hey, I would love to schedule a consultation with you. Yeah, shoot me an email. We can talk through email. Shoot me an email, just telling me like your whole the whole story and how you're feeling and what you think's going on. Okay, perfect. Yeah, get started with that because I'm not ready to retire. You know, I have (laughs) some goals. I don't think you have to if your squats improve. That should tell you something. Yeah. That cool. tells you your your spine can figure it out. You just got to figure it out. Mm-hmm. Figure that, it that's out. it. There, there's a path. Yeah. You just don't know where it is right now. Mm. Right? Yeah. Yeah. If, if, your, if your spine can handle that load of the squat, so there's something there. Awesome. Okay. Awesome. Thanks so much, Greg. Thank you, Greg. That was Appreciate great. Appreciate it. Okay. Thank you, guys. Have a good day. Okay. Take care. Work on your backflip. <laughs> <laughs>